Hello and welcome back to the Verified Geek Podcast. This week's episode is all about Natalia Rus, a successful co-founder that went from political studies to learning how to code through a coding bootcamp. Eventually, she ended up running a company named Custodian. Custodian will digitize your car ownership experience and it will keep all your car's important documents and photos and reminders in a digital format. Natalia is in charge of the hiring process, the front end, the back end of the application and pretty much everything around the company. She's very knowledgeable of all the new technologies and she explains to us how to successfully run a company remotely. Please don't miss this week's episode and don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. Thank you. Hi, Natalia. How are you? Hello, Dora. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm good. Thank you so much for coming. Um, so where are you based exactly? I'm based in London at the moment and for the foreseeable future. Oh, nice. Perfect. Uh, so I brought you uh, on the show because you have quite a remarkable career so far. Um, you have been quite an exceptional student at, at university and you're also a co-founder and you have quite a big, interesting journey in tech. So I thought, It'd be a nice uh, opportunity for you to come to the Verified Geek podcast and share your journey with us. Um, Thank you so much for this introduction. It's very kind. That's perfect. Tell me a bit about you. Uh, what did you study exactly and how did you decide to work in tech? Yeah, so my, my career has been quite short so far and very volatile. I actually started in politics. So in high school, you know, I was literally taking history of arts, philosophy, ancient Greek, Latin. I did not have any scientific class, any STEM class at all. I actually stopped learning maths, I think at like 14. Um, you know, in France, you can choose quite early on to kind of um, separate from STEM. And that's what I did. Um, and yes, in my mind, it was very crystal clear. I wanted to be in diplomacy, I wanted to be in the conversations for war and peace. Right now, when I look at what's happening in, Af in Afghanistan, for example, I remember why I was so geared towards international relations because the stakes are so high. It's the lives of people okay. you're talking about. And I wanted to have the biggest impact on the world that I could. And it seemed like a no-brainer that where you'd have the most impact is in situations of war and peace, where you have to be there and negotiate and try to get people out. Um, so that's that's why I went to politics and international relations, and I joined the first program in Moscow uh, of the program of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Russia, in the school that it has. Um, it was the first time that they opened their doors for a program made purely for foreign people. And we were only 15. And I went there after high school, and it was a very, very eye-opening experience. I've learned so much there. It's, their program is really good, by the way. But the, the thing which I realized was that Um, in those kind of negotiations, you are only, you know, an employee of the state and there's not much decisions you can take. And sometimes if you disagree with what's being decided, you actually have no voice. And right. so I felt like I felt like I had been disillusioned. Uh, and, you know, when you're a child and when you're an adolescent and when you're a teenager, you can be quite naive in how the world works. And I guess I learned it the hard way because now as an adult, To me, it makes sense that, of course, diplomats can't just make their own decisions. Like, to me, that's crystal clear. Like, of course. <laughs> But at yeah. the time, I had this 
idealism that you know people can step in and, and change the situation. Um, I still went on to learn politics at the University of Edinburgh because you know that had been my life goal and I was very lost. I was there like, what do I do now? I'm very interested in studying politics. I'm very interested in this field. I just saw that you know on the ground it's not what I had expected. Um, I had still, you know, I had like an experience at the World Trade, um, uh, the World Trade Organization for, uh, yeah, it was international law for all like the the rules of like how you know the 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 commerce should work between countries in Geneva. So it was still like international government stuff, but it was also more on the private side because it was more commerce. And right. again, I thought. It was not as impactful as I had wished, as in, it is impactful as an organization, but as a single person, I was a bit lost. Right. And so I realized, okay, this is really not for me. All the stuff in international relations and whatever, I'm interested in it. I can't find a place for me. So I was very lost again. And someone told me, look, every ambitious people who don't know what they are doing, go to banking. So go to banking and figure it out. <laughs> so I said, okay, fair enough. Okay, I had watched the Wolf of Wall Street, and it was the first time ever I had heard about equity, stock market, whatever. I had no idea this bubble existed at all. Like, at all. Like, I never invested in my life. My parents never invested in their lives. I don't think my parents know what equity means themselves, like stuff like that. <laughs> so it was like a whole new world. And I was like, okay, that looks fun, you know. Went there, ended up at uh, Goldman Sachs in equity research. And again, same delusion, delusion, <laughs> disillusion happened. <laughs> I realized it looked fun in movies. It looked, it looked fun when you hear about it, but when you actually live it, it's not fun. And I did mm. not enjoy it at all. I loved working with the people there because they were really smart and brilliant people and actually very kind. But um, the day-to-day -day work, I hated it and I did not find any meaning in it. And um, it was another dark period when I was there like, again, I have to restart from scratch. I don't know what I want to do in my life. Um, but funnily enough, it was actually at the internship where, because I was in equity research, I was having to basically research the market and talk to people. And, you know, I was I was led to talk to a lot of people, especially engineers in blockchain at the time. It was like all the rage around it, whether we should invest in it or not. And mm. especially, you know, I was valuing banks. And of course, banks were at the time wondering whether how seriously they should take the switch to you know, cryptocurrencies. So that's how I got to speak to so many founders and engineers to try to understand what was the whole thing about. When I talked right. to them, they told me what are we doing during the day, like what code was. Again, I did not even know that JavaScript itself was a programming language. To me, JavaScript was like the logo that you see, Java, in very old desktop. I thought it was like a mm. software for... For graphics, you know, I yeah. was so clueless. <laughs> and um, and so I learned a lot by talking to them and I realized, hell, okay, maybe a third time, maybe the third time will be the right time, <laughs> the right pick. Um, tech sounds cool and it sounds fun. And I want to be what doing what they do all day long. Engineers were literally there like, I put my headphones on and I solve problems all day long. And nice. it's intellectually challenging. And at the same time, when you code, you can have the impact that you want on the world because you can create so many things for so many different people you choose. And there are a lot of companies out there who solve problems in healthcare, the you know, companies that solve problems even in diplomacy, like you know, technologies is everything nowadays. Yeah. So is that like, okay, it looks like it's the intersection of everything I've wanted, which is you know, you can make as, in, as impactful as you want as an individual. 
Um, and all day long, it's fun. I don't have to have spreadsheets, which are boring and repetitive. I can solve problems like solving little puzzles. Um, you know, so nice. I, I went on my coding journey. I learned how to code on my own. Obviously, I was still studying poetics at the University of Edinburgh. Um, the nice thing about studying poetics for me was that I was naturally very good at writing essays and I was really naturally good at like, you know, going through at university without doing much to get very good grades. So that means I had a lot of free time. And yeah. during that free time, I could literally teach myself, also get inside of the STEM community, like organize meetups, organize, you know, women in tech um, mm. events and a conference. So I had the time to both socialize, go to hackathons to kind of get to understand how the tech world is. Like I wanted to see with whom I may be potentially working. Do I enjoy you know, doing projects with those kind of people. That's really important because in banking, for example, I actually liked the people. It was just the work. So, mm. you know, I saw that I really got along with everyone in tech, really nice people. And um, and yeah, I learned how to go on my own. And I did a, a nap at a university, um, which was super complicated, really bad business idea. It was a disaster. But it was how I learned you know, how entrepreneurship really worked as well, which was really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. I had the idea of having a sort of Deliveroo, eBay, all mixed up with students, literally like helping students to find gigs and mm -hmm. helping students to find, you know, errand jobs, which could pay well. So for example, let's say I really, I wanted someone to do my nails for a party. I would pay a student to come to do it at my house in my room for 30 pounds something like that and it would be another student and they would not need to be like a professional in that they would just send me pictures you know a lot of girls do that for themselves like really right. nice nails but they don't earn money for it because they don't own a salon they just do it for themselves but you know they could they could actually be earning quite a lot if people were there like you're not a professional but I see your quality I see you're doing it well can you please do it for me mm -hmm. like stuff like that basically a bit like what um Go Rabbit does, I think it's called uh, nowadays. So there, are, there is someone out there who turned this idea into a reality uh, in the US, but it was so complicated as a first business idea. I learned that I had to raise so much money for it. And I was there like, why? I'm just going to code it myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> I started a lot of coding this myself and I was there like, okay, <laughs> I understand now why you need to raise money. <laughs> It's so, impossible to do it alone. Let me stop you here because I have some questions on the way. So at Goldman Sachs, you did an internship? Yes, it was a three-month internship. At, um, it was a summer internship when I was studying at the University of Edinburgh. It was right, my okay. pre... my Not my last year of university, it was the year before the last. So perfect right. timing because I did not have... I had like a whole year to figure myself mm. out in tech before I left university, right. which is... Great, because in Edinburgh, it's four years. Yeah, 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 I know. England. So, um, and then when you had this idea of developing this application, you were actually studying, still studying politics. Yes, All yes right, I was cool. still okay. studying politics. But again, politics, it was, it was a difficult course if you're not good at writing essays. But remember that I had dropped like learning maths when I was 14 to instead do philosophy and essays writing, like, you know, I had, I, in high school, I had like three essays to write per week. So, you know, mm -hmm. having a few essays per term to me was nothing. So yeah. I was able to do both at the same time, actually very easily. That's good because when I was a student, I definitely didn't uh, spend my time like this. <laughs> That's very, yeah. it, it's like, it's amazing because when I was a student studying computer science, I didn't even know that I wanted to do 
mm. that and be a coder or anything like that I kind of find find it along the way but it's quite remarkable how you were basically looking to find your passion while studying something else in in, in your yeah, studies I, I was studying my passion to yeah. be fair like I'm still very interested in international relations and politics I'm, I'm very passionate about this but and it was it was nice to have a moment in your life where you can just focus on studying something that you're super into even if you know that mm-hmm. it's not something that will be you know valuable in itself uh, you know it's kind yeah. of and um well i've been fortunate as well to do that of course in edinburgh university it was free for uh, students who were from the european union so i felt like you know if i was not studying something which is like you know something super valuable in itself like i was not you know it was not this constant pressure of oh my god you have a degree you have like the sunk cost of it. You have to do something in politics because you studied politics. It was more like, okay, I'm in Edinburgh. There's a huge opportunity. I'm just going to make the most of the campus. Like yeah, creating events, going to conferences, learning about myself, like finding out what I want. There was not mm. this constant pressure, which was really helpful. Mm. So during your studies, you were one of the most influential female students at the university. Uh, tell me a bit about this experience. Yeah. So again, I think, I think that it was something that I was uh, voted for. So it was like a, a voting sort of context contest. And I think the reason why I got it is because I changed fields so much mm. while I was at university that, you know, at first I was in politics. So I was very, very um, active in the political societies. Right. I was very active in you know the journal for the international relations academics, academics journal. I was very active in then when I went to banking inside of UTIC, which is one of the biggest societies in, in Europe for students where they can invest money as students in, into this organization, which is really cool for you know learning how you know investing works in general and how investment banking world is. And and then you know when I realized I actually wanted to go into tech, <laughs> then I started attending like hackathons, doing conferences around that. So I right. think I had I had a lot of circles of friends within across the university, which were across disciplines, across schools. So it was I didn't just have you know like a, a set group of friends within you know my my degree, which is what most people would have. I had mm. a large number of friends across many different domains. And so I think when this contest came, it was not just my school or my degree voting for it. It was like all the people that I had been acquaintance with across societies and across courses that voted for me. And I think that's why it ended up being more numerous in terms of votes compared to other people. So what what, what was your first, moving on, finishing your studies, what was your first job title in the tech industry? Um, engineering contractor, software engineering contractor. I did a bootcamp after university. I did CodeWorks, which, by the way, I really recommend. Um, I did a bootcamp to kind of, um, well, to get a sense of security. You know what I mean? Mm, um, yeah. It's very difficult to get out there when you have absolutely no formal um, education in computer mm. science. Um, it's it's easier than other fields but you know even in investment banking like the people that I was working with they had studied theology they had studied mm-hmm. a lot of other random degrees which is not banking and actually it was better in investment banking if you're not coming from a degree that was um, management or business so right. you know when people say you know it's easier to find a job as a software engineer 
without a degree compared to other fields, I would say, no, that's not true. So for example, even marketing people, you don't have to study marketing to be in marketing. Like all of the people who you see end up in marketing, a lot of them studied geosciences or, you know, other stuff. Um, In computer science, you know, it is true that it's it's possible to find a job without a degree, but I would still say that there is a clear advantage if you've studied computer science, which makes sense. Um, and so having having absolutely nothing when there are boot camps nowadays, which bring a lot of legitimacy to, to companies, but also other people in tech, um, to me, it was a no-brainer to go and, and do one, um, just mm. for kind of peace of mind. And, and also obviously to learn as much as I can and to check that my, my learning was on par with what was expected, for example, after a boot camp, you know, because yeah. everything is related. Um, and so, yeah, I did the bootcamp, loved it. Um, after, after I did, I did take a few months to find my first gig. Um, and to be fair, I had a lot of offers. I had a lot of, uh, companies wanting to hire me, even companies who proposed me to move me to San Francisco and stuff like that. Like I would say the tech industry was very welcoming and I did well in interviews. However, the thing for me is I really was valuing my freedom at the time. Mm. I was there like... I don't want to engage myself, sign contracts of three years, move countries already, and then realize, oh, I don't like it. I was a bit commitment shy, let's put it that way. I knew that mm-hmm. what I wanted was technology, but I was not sure, you know, which stack, which which uh, which part of technology. There are so many different ways of being a software engineer, yeah. you know. Um, and I didn't want to clock myself out too too soon. Also, I was not sure where I wanted to live. Like there were so many like random variables everywhere. Uh, looking for like it was a no-brainer and all of the offers which i received it was there like okay it's a relief that i can find something now that i know that i can find something i can kind of be picky and understand exactly the offer that i want you see what i mean because yeah at first the first time and actually someone at codeworks was really helpful for me his name is mark Azos. i had an offer at first and i really wanted to take it and it was an offer which i had literally even before i graduated from the bootcamp and the person at the bootcamp told me look Right now, it feels like the growl. It feels like you're desperate for an offer. But trust me, like offers will come. Don't say yes to the first opportunity you see. He said, like, trust me, it will come more. Like, don't be desperate. He was like, wait, wait and see, see all the different things you can do. He was like, having a job is not like a, a you know a light decision. You have to take it very seriously, and you can't be desperate. That I was like, okay. And that was really helpful because, you know, I really wanted to say yes to that first job offer, which was not very, it was not very good. It was literally like being an intern, um, you know, not a proper software engineer, more like an intern uh, at mm. a small startup, which I did not feel much um, care for. But I was like, oh my God, it's something. Someone wants me in tech. And, you know, I said no at the end and that was the best decision. And, you know, and so, yeah, again, and I, I was there like, okay, I'd like to have a contractor role for now the reason why is one you kind of choose the projects that you work on and that was important for me i wanted to make sure that i was very intentional with what i was working on uh two you choose the stack you can choose you know which stack you prefer and i wanted to learn a lot as well so you can have a mix between challenging yourself by adding more stuff into the stack which excites you but also keeping it safe when you have to do something that you know quickly with a stack that you're comfortable with so it was kind of safe in that environment but also the thing is, I also wanted to be mentored and it's difficult to be mentored when you have a contract, mm. which was the big minus. I was there like the problem with I'm being a contractor is I'm not, I'm not being managed by someone who teaches me what I'm doing wrong 
obviously. Mm. So that's why usually you do contracts when you're a bit more confirmed because then you know what you're doing and you know you don't need to have someone supervising you. So I was like, okay, ideal scenario is finding a, a contract role where you are working with someone who mentors you. I don't know whether that exists or not, but this is, you know, I was basically laying out all of my needs and trying to see whether there would be an opportunity that fits them the most. Another reason why I wanted to be a contractor and not an employee was because I knew 100% that one of the reasons why I came into tech was to found my own company and to do my own startup. And I knew Mm. that by signing up as an employee for three years, for example, you would not have this flexibility and you'd be stuck in a role where perhaps the growth is a bit limited. You learn how to do one very specific part of the stack or one specific part of an application, especially in big companies, but you don't learn how to build a product from the ground and how to grow Mm. it. Um, and how to scale it, how to write code from scratch, which is scalable, and you know how to train people. Like you learn these things eventually in big companies, but it takes way longer. Whereas yeah. as a contractor, you are one hundred percent owner of the project, and also it gives yeah. you this flexibility to be there. Like I don't have a contract. If if next week I found the co-founder and we want to do something, we'll just do it. But so that brings would, me. Yeah, yeah go on. Tell Please me. Do, go ahead. Uh, that brings me to a question like, do you prefer contracting as a software engineer or a permanent job? Um, well, I have never had a permanent job in software engineering. Ah, okay. Um, I only did contracting and I did my own company, which was the whole plan. And this is also one of my advice to people is if you if you want something, you know, you have to be strategic about what you're doing. Like hearing people say, I'm hearing so many of my friends or people say, I want to do a startup, I want to do a startup, but they don't align their lives in order to make it happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. They say they want to do it, but they they don't put themselves in the situation where it's likely to happen. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and you have to sit down, write your goals, write everything that could lead to it, everything that would mean that it would be difficult to get there. And then you have to, you know, think twice before you you make a decision in, in life in general. That's that's to any part of life, but especially your career, because there's so many possible opportunities, you know. Yeah, and so, true. I I don't know. I've never I've never worked as a, an employee, even even at the, com- at the our startup. Like, I'm I'm not just doing you know software engineering, doing a bit of everything, and you know I'm I'm talking with the marketing people all the time. I'm also um, you know, trying to understand what we're going to build next, how the feature should look. I'm doing the design at the same time, the product at the same time, you know, a bit of everything. Um, so it's very different than how it would be if I were just a purely a software engineer working somewhere. Like yeah, it's of course. Experience. So to answer you your also, question, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you also, as a co-founder, are you also involved in the hiring process? Yeah, of course, 100%. Yeah. Um, so, um, yes, um, hiring was um, very interesting because um, you, it's it's very interesting when you're on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and honestly, I understand why I had a lot of offers and if I, even if I didn't even finish the bootcamp. I think that I received a lot of offers where there is no, there's no indication about the people. There is no, very few sent cover letters and, and very few sent a CV which put their strength you know, in, in the forefront, I would, I would interview people, even if there was not much there, because I could sense that there was something else, you know, you can mm. sense. And yeah. I was asking them questions and they were formidable. They were great people. And I was there like, 
they're great people. They've done so many great things. How come it's not something that they put forward in their CV or putting forward in their application? Because I really, you know, had to dig them up to kind of find all the treasures. And so, you know, the advice to people who are listening and who would like to find their first job in the industry really is show enthusiasm, show that you're willing to learn, show that you're willing to be mentored, Uh, do contact co-founders themselves. And and I promise you that at some point, someone will, will answer you. And, you know, you have to put yourself out there. Yeah, that's very, very interesting and very true. I agree with that. Um, so let's talk about Custodian, the, 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 the company that you're a co-founder for, right? What is Custodian? What do they do? Mm-hmm. And what are your responsibilities in the company? Okay. Cool. So, um, well, the way that I co-founded Custodian, because a lot of of that is part of that is uh, I actually eventually founded my mentor for a contracted role. She's called mm-hmm. Jeremy Hindle. I contacted him via LinkedIn. I had made the list of people that I wanted to contact because they would be the ideal people to work with. And Jeremy was the ideal kind of person to work with because he was basically in, in social entrepreneurship, but also he was a self-taught um, technologist, um, very successful. He's done really impressive stuff. Um, and he changed his mind many times. You know, he worked for real estate and he worked in neuroscience, then he worked in tech. And I was there like, okay, if I reach out to these kind of people for contracting roles and, you know, collaboration, they will understand where I'm coming from because they've been through it as well. It's, you know, it would be very different if I had reached out to someone who studied computer science at a university, never changed their field and stayed in there because I think they would have seen me as unstable, which I understand the sentiment you need to find someone with whom you resonate. Um, yeah. And so I reached out to Jeremy. Jeremy was literally there like, yeah, sure. Like there is this contracting role that I don't have the time to do, um, which is around, you know, a TKS, the oldest company in the UK. And he was there like, you can do, you know, you can take that contract because I don't have the time to do it. And, you know, I can help you out whenever you're stuck. So that was really helpful. And we worked on that for uh, like around a year. Jeremy was doing, you know, something else full-time. He was just exiting his last company, uh, Head Start, which went through YC. He also had just won Forbes under 30, that kind of stuff. So he was kind of taking a break after having worked so hard for so many years. Um, So it was a very lucky timing because at the end of my contract, one of his best friends from school reached out to him um, and said, hey, I have an idea. I want to make this a company. Would you be my co-founder? And Jimmy was there like, I'm trying to get an incubator off the ground at the same time. So I can't be like, I can't be just me, your co-founder. He's like, I need to bring someone else as a co-founder to kind of co-share the responsibilities in technology. So All he right. brought me in and he was like, hey, Nat, I'm doing this, this incubator. I don't have the time to be completely like, you know, full-time on custodian as a co-founder, but you know, he was like, I can be the CTO and like decide of the technology stack, etc. You can be on the ground, you know, managing everything and the product as well and stuff like that. And um, and with Charles, you know, so three co-founders. And I was there like, that sounds that sounds good to me. Um, so I chose, you know, the company was made more because the team makes sense rather than the business idea in itself. We kind of created the business idea afterwards. We, we saw that we had the correct team. We saw that we had, you know, the correct uh, relationships. That everything was very smooth. We worked very well together. And then we were like, okay, what do we do? So Charles um, is, you know, history racer. He loves cars. He's passionate about the automotive industry. Um, he has all the contacts there and is, you know, very, very, very knowledgeable. He's literally is like 
dictionary for everything in car related world. And so initially he had reached out to Jeremy being there like, there is a need to disrupt this industry because everything is done on paper, by phone calls. It's it's a huge mess. And, and there's so much to be done technologically wise on this industry. And so he wanted uh, at the start to build a sort of social network, um, like Instagram for cars. He was there like, I don't want to be on Instagram all the time because one, privacy. Two, it's difficult to find people who are exactly in the same mindset as you. He was like, like a club, but like online. So that was the right. first idea, which is very different from what we have now. So then mm. um, I came in uh, with uh, Jeremy, sorry. And... <laughs> And we decided to start from scratch. We were like, okay, we have you, Charles, within the automotive world. We have Jeremy and Natalia for like best product design and tech. Okay, what do we do? And we looked at all of the different processes that were there to own a car. And we sat down with Charles and Charles went through all of the paperwork that he had to do to insure his car or to uh, you know, manage his tasks, to digitalize his history. Because if he loses the documents of his car, all of the car loses its value. So, and if he takes, if he chooses the wrong service provider, his car could lose all of its value or multiply by 10. Like, right. you know, like investing in cars is, is very interesting. It's, it's a bit like investing in a painting in a lot of ways, but it's actually way more difficult than paintings because you also have to maintain it. Whereas paintings, you still have to maintain some stuff, but it's not comparable to a car when it breaks down on the road, you know, like it's not mm. straightforward at all. And there is no technology behind this world at all so we were like okay well let's make it our mission let's make it our mission to make ownership easy we're going right. to provide a platform where it helps car owners whatever happens we can recommend them the best for service providers giving their given their specific vehicle we can eventually offer you know valuation tools we can eventually do so many different things you know and we start simple we'll start with you know managing your day-to-day -day tasks managing, you know, with your reminders, uh, digitalizing your document history, all this stuff, which are actually very, very handy. And, nice. uh, you know, that we can start with, we don't need to start like, you know, a marketplace and stuff like that. Um, we get people in, we get people interested in our proposition. And on the long term, we can literally roll out many, many different features. So right. that was the plan. And that is still the plan. Um, and so my responsibilities. You know, in startups, they change. Uh, in startups, you don't have like a set responsibility. Um, mm. I do a bit of everything, you know, like I've um, every week is different, you know, overall, like I'm 100% uh, hands-on, uh, you know, the, the code of the front end. Um, I've 100% I've done that. And also like at the start, I was doing all the design for the platform, like the desktop, the mobile. I've done all the design myself. And then um, over time, I kind of switched. I was there like, okay, Jeremy, can you please take on a bit more of the design work? And then I can focus on the back end. And then I was focusing on the back end more recently. Jeremy has been taking more design work. Um, and so, you know, hiring as well, do, doing also like understanding, you know, what marketing campaigns we do, like, yeah, basically a bit of everything, everything. responsibility-wise, yeah. I would say front-end in terms of responsibility. Yeah. At the end of the day, if something breaks with the platform, it's my responsibility, in, you know, in, on, on the front-end side. Um, That's very interesting. I want to kind of learn, and obviously you can share it if you want. What kind of technologies do you use for custodian? Because yeah, sure. I, I really love yeah. the idea of digitalizing all your... Um, the paperwork that's there. So what kind yeah. of technologies do you use to yeah. do that? So actually the, the interesting technologies um, is more around valuations, 
as well like where are you going to and um and we have been very ambitious with custodian in the sense that we consider ourselves we are a technology first company our ip is in the tech okay our ip right. is not in the business idea a lot of people can do what we do the the ip really is the tech and so we jeremy he's he's really talented at picking the right tool right at the right time uh, even if sometimes it's a bit too early at the end of the day it's it's perfect because then you're seen as a thought leader in that field and so on the back end we have golang obviously golang at the you know at the time it was two years ago golang was not as hot as it is now um jeremy has been starting working golang for four years it's way more performant than node uh you know it's it's so much more scalable than JavaScript. I can't. I can't imagine having JavaScript on the back end. It would. I would be a nervous working. Um, okay. I would be very nervous. And so what language um, do you use for GoLang on the back end? Golang. Okay. Yeah. And um, it's it's very very scalable. It's perfect. It's what you know big companies use, like Google, obviously, which created GoLang. Um, hmm. But um, but it makes sense for a startup as well because you basically have the best engineers because people who you know or coding in Golang, really like it teaches you so much good stuff. Um, you know, it teaches you so many different concepts um, which make you a really good engineer. So, you know, coding in Golang makes you think in, in such a clean, nice way. You can focus on the logic and that's how you can become a really good engineer because you have the space to think for the logic. It's, it's a very pure language, it's, it's great. Um, and then for the database, which was honestly, I think a great, a great move, but it was very difficult, especially for Jeremy, who was in charge of it, DGraph. DGraph is a new um, database, uh, which has been created only a few years ago by Manish, um, who was basically, you know, when you type on Google and you have um, you have highlighted answers and questions, mm. like those things, you know, this th these answers and these questions, basically, what are they? You make a research and Google is like, okay, I know that based on this research, there'll be a bunch of questions which relate to that. And the person is likely to actually try to get to know this. So Google is trying to get even smarter than you and is like, actually, what you're trying to look for is this. Am I yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. So that is what Manish created when he was at Google. And he left Google to focus 100% on that. And that is called DGraph. And DGraph is a graph database, as the name says, right. uh, which is ultra performance like i've never seen this like you can see the graphs that we make and like we have like like thousands like hundreds of thousands of, of nodes coming up in like microseconds it's crazy crazy fast um it's um it's so well architectured it's amazing um the, the downside of that is that because it's very new there is no recommendation at the start there was no community you know you don't have an answer on stack overflow you just don't yeah 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 yeah, yeah that's that's and, usually the problem you know, with new technologies but yeah eventually they get there yeah e eventually but then um then that also means that we have a competitive advantage because when you have all the people who try in the field to value things so difficult to value like cars like to put things into context if your car has been photographed by a photographer who was a big deal in the 60s at a car event just that random stuff can change the value yeah. of your car. So imagine all the thousands of things that are attached to a car or to any collectible yeah. object. Like it's so, it's in, impossible to have that in a SQL database. You just can't make the connection. No, it's even even with NeoGraph, um, the other graph databases that we looked at, there's a maximum of nodes that you can go deep. A deep mm. graph, you know, it's there's no limits basically it's it's so yeah. good um and so it's a great competitive advantage because you know what we can provide on the long term 
will beat whatever else the other people are using when they're using a database, which make it so easy. Um, mm. So it is it is worth, and the fact that it's so new and the fact that not a lot of people use it really means that we are pioneers in the field, really. Uh, and uh, and it's really exciting that like Jeremy's in touch with you know the the founding members of of Digraph and um, myself, for example, I'm, I'm doing a workshop about on Digraph at the Women in Tech series um, in November. Mm-hmm. So you kind of when you pick a technology at the start when it's getting hot, if you're the early adopter and you're successful at it, one, it's very easy to hire because you're one of the and you you know lead thought leaders in the field and so therefore it attracts a lot of great engineers to want to work with you um and two it just makes you such a better engineer because you don't have the answers given to you you have to figure stuff out and for yourself in terms of you know the everyday hustle it feels great it's very satisfactory and the front end the front end is react with typescript uh you know react typescript relax stuff like that um using just javascript would again make me too nervous there's so many things that could break and mm. yeah, I, I can't think of it. It's not very scalable. Um, but you know, on the front end, you don't want to not use something like JavaScript, obviously. I mean, there is stuff like Flutter and whatever. It's it's even more early than the graph Flutter on the web. You know, it's it's getting there, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it's going to take time. And, um, you know, it's a kind of a no-brainer as well to hire and also like speed of development. But then, you know, using TypeScript with React, you know, it's you basically remove... The, the problems of, of JavaScript. You keep exactly the same as it is, you just remove the problems. And then with TypeScript, you have all the safety, all of the ways to make it scalable, all of the ways to make the architecture make sense and you know easily testable and stuff like that. So it was it was a really good choice. And I'm using the methodology which Jeremy had advised me to look into, which is atomic design. Atomic oh, design yeah. is basically yeah. I made so many talks about this. Um, my talk in the TypeScript conference is coming soon as well. It's um, it's a really nice way of of, archi- of doing the architecture of your apps. I would definitely encourage you to look into this as well. Atomic design. Nice. And the the, the mobile version of it is in React Native. So we are doing a pidgin, a progressive web app. Ah, okay. okay. Yeah, of course. So yeah. what progressive web app is basically is you can install it on your phone. You just don't have to go through, you know, the Apple Store or yeah, know, the yeah. other stuff. And uh, we may, you know, in the future we may switch to uh, no switch. We have to keep, of course, our web infrastructure. In the future, mm. I think we'll also do the native uh, version. But you yeah. know, for people who manage their cars, it's important to have a desktop application because you need to drag on so many files and stuff like that. I agree. Dealers, yeah. for example, when they work, dealers work on their desktop. They don't want to yeah. work with their clients on on the phone. You know, um, when you have so many things to upload, usually you use your 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 computer. So um, yeah. there were there were a lot of reasons why to it would make sense to start with a desktop yeah. and mobile app, and then just focus on the mobile when the time comes. Yeah, I agree with that. I used to I used to work in a company making games, and we did the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. We were basically focused on the desktop version, and it was a PWA. Um, and I just, I always say to people that get obsessed with owning an app is that just make sure sometimes your idea makes more sense to be on desktop, like pay attention yeah. or you're on desktop more than Wait. the app. And then sometimes there are other times where it makes more sense to be an app more than a desktop, an app on the phone more than, so because, and it's all because of the fact that people these days are obsessed with owning an app 
mm-hmm. like a friend of mine, he wants to create this com- pizza community, a community about pizza, basically. Um, Italian, obviously. And I said to him, <laughs> he wants to create an app early at this stage, although he does have the desktop version. Obviously, to create an app on the phone is a lot more difficult. So I said to him, just make sure you build your community first. You have yes, something exactly. to work with. And then I'll help you create the app. Or maybe then you will have the money as well to create the app. But yeah. it's way too early in the process. And also, you know, when you have to make updates to the app, like if it is on an app store or whatever, like you have a whole process. You can't just push the code and it updates. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, and it, let's say that you have a bug that you haven't seen and that happens 100% when you launch a product. Like 100% you will have bugs. You will have people tell you yeah. something does not work or something is wrong or they, they don't like this and you have to change it as app. And then you have the bad reviews. <laughs> and then yeah. people vote you down. And then exactly, to get to yeah. the update is a hell on earth. Like it's not iterative enough. I think it's much better to, as you say, build the community first have the prototype and everything working like on desktop, have people liking your products, iterate, try to understand why they like, what they don't like. And I think the mobile app really should be, if even it needs to be, um, it should be at the end with finalized version, which you're, you're certain is like, you know, this one you're going for. So even myself, like last week, I had to push so many changes in for example small stuff like for example people couldn't find a way to update their bio because there was like the edit button which was like the far left so i was Mm. like okay let's make every let's make everything clickable so like if you click on no bio it's clickable and of course you can edit it small stuff like that like i changed it in like what 10 minutes pushed it and it was there if if there was a mobile app doing those things those sort of changes every day is just not no Mm. it's it's difficult I find it very interesting that you said it's quite remarkable, you know, to just go from a bootcamp to a, being a co-founder and doing the design, the front end and the back end. It's not a lot of people can do that. It's so, a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I, I put my social life out of there. I, I don't yeah. have a social life. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. It's so uh, I all of my university friends. Like I, yeah. I, I don't have the time to to socialize now I have a bit more time because I I finally I'm in a place where we raise money we are you know we are hiring I kind of have a bit more on my plate and I have also slightly Mm. less to learn because like you know after the the huge climb when you start in tech you know you you still have to learn but like it's nowhere as disorienting as when you you first start and so Mm. now it's it's a bit better but you know it is it is definitely like all of my weekends I had worked all of my evenings. I had worked again. I lost all my university friends, um, you know, which, you know, they, they continued on, you know, a mix between university life and em- employee life when you kind of, yeah. you go to the pub after work and you go, you know, and, and you go and have dinner parties and all day long stuff. During yeah, the event. Yeah, I was yeah. not taking part of any of this. Yeah. Um, so do I advise people to do the same? I don't know. I think, you know, before you want to have, you know, high goals for your career, you have to make sure that this is actually what you want. Um, yeah. Because there are a lot of sacrifices on the way. Sometimes it's worth it. For me, it's worth it because I really love what I do. And to me, it makes sense to put all my effort in my career because I'm spending like eight hours a day on it minimum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it's not a small thing. <laughs> but yeah, for a lot yeah. of people, they are fine with spending eight hours a day where they like what they're doing. They don't 
really wanted to the next level because it means that they can have like a lot of other stuff in their life, like social life and, and friends and events and stuff like that. So definitely, I don't want to be there like, oh, that's what you have to do because it's, you definitely do have sacrifices that you have to account for. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so the design, the UX, UI design, because um, you said you learned how to code on your own and through the bootcamp, but how did you learn how to do a proper good UI, UX for the for the custodian? Um, by trial and error, you know, um, I spent so much time learning design, so much time. It was so painful. I was really yeah. bad at it at first. Um, I remember how the first design which I made were when I was at university for this app, which I mentioned. And I was so exuberant because I'm I'm an artist on the side. Like I do digital art, but also like physical art. And so that helps in the sense that it does give you this aesthetic sense. Mm. You see when something looks ugly and when something looks good and you care about making it look good, which is yeah. what's most important in UI. I have a lot of friends in computer science they make apps which look so bad, but they don't put care in it. They, To them, it's a chore and not something that's enjoyable to make, you know, a design that looks nice and you can see it. So, you know, you have to be willing to spend hours and hours and hours just on one button to make it look credible. If yeah, you don't have the patience and the care and love, you just won't get there. You'll give up. Yeah, so, that's um, my problem. I don't have yeah. that much love with UI, UX, and I go and just straight to the code. And also yeah. my problem was that I was the person, like you said, you know, working and going to the pub. Because when you're in your early 20s, you have just graduated, you get your first job, but you kind of like continue the university life. And that's probably why I am not a co-founder now. Uh, but yeah, I well done for, for doing all of this. I really like your views on technologies from what you've been telling me. So you've used React Native and Flutter and Angular. What's your preferred choice of building yeah. across platform apps? Um, I personally hated React Native. Uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, I Again, I think it's also because I usually, I usually try to make those apps in my side projects and I had very, very ambitious ideas how it should look and I was not mm. worried about you know the functionality of it and whatever you can have a look at my website it's not very functional but it's it's beautiful and I wanted to make it look like a unique experience and so I have very specific niche <laughs> things to implement on my projects for mobile design and yeah. with React Native it was forcing me to have very boring stuff which looked kind of dry and not very interesting yeah. and I was there like okay well I can't really go far with this um, that was my only problem with React Native was that if you wanted to be ambitious with the UI and the UX, it was putting, you had so much workarounds and it was not encouraging you to do something cool. It was, you know, and um, it kind of removes the fun. It's very dry. Um, the thing which blew my mind really was Flutter. I loved Flutter so much. Just the developer experience is much better. Like, you know, the debugging mm. and everything, it's so much easier to, once you set it up, it's super easy. And um, and it has so much very nice, like, based UI stuff when you can do the transitions, whatever, without CSS, it does it for you. Like, you don't have to worry about making it look like a credible app. With React Native, the problem which I had with that is that 
it doesn't look like a native app. It doesn't feel native. And to make it feel native and to make it look credible, it's so, so little, little, there's so many little different small things that you have to yeah. make work. And it becomes tiring because it's not a question of logic. It's a question of trying to make something work when they make it more complicated for you. I understand why it's been made like this, but still. Whereas Flutter, it looks like Flutter, you, even if I have no code on it, the app which I have looks majestic. It looks credible. You know, the, the animations, the web pages, the navigations, like everything just make it look like effortlessly native, yeah. which feels amazing. And of course, Flutter is nice as well, as nice as React Native for the fact that it's both for Android and iOS at the same time, for those who listen who don't know. Yeah, it's and also yeah. Flutter is going to get get on the web as well eventually. I'm looking forward to that. I studied, you know, the black block pattern, which is you know how you get with the data, and that was very interesting. A Dart, the language is really cool. I love it. I love more object oriented, you know, languages like not object oriented, but more like type safety stuff. It's really nice as well. Um, you know, again, I think the only reason why Flutter hasn't taken off that much is purely because of Dart, because people are there like, oh, it's a new language. But actually, if they looked into Dart, it's very easy to pick up. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of very nice um, IntelliSense in, in, in the VS Code stuff. It's, it's very nice to work with. I would say it's actually easier than JavaScript. So um, I hope that it's going to take off to the extent that React Native has, I think, I think it has, I don't know, I, I looked into Stack Overflow stats and it was not looking too bad. But still, mm. I, I see a lot of offers around for React Native and not Flutter. I see more offers for Flutters for contractors and not, you know, for employee stuff. And I think that's also why people are a bit there like, if I if I learn React Native, I'm going to get a job like 100%. With Flutter, I may not. And that's why they don't yeah. learn it as well. So I hope that people who hire hear me out. <laughs> Flutter <laughs> yeah. is a good idea for your organization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah, very, very nice point of view. Oh, um, just Angular versus React, very quickly, because you did ask me this yeah, question. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think React with TypeScript makes a lot of sense because the thing which I loved about Angular was the safety with uh, TypeScript. And I met Bootcamp, the founder of the Bootcamp said, look, if I have a startup, if I have to uh, employ, you know, hire like a rock star engineer, he said, um, if it's a beginner, I would ask them to do it in Angular. If it's not a beginner, they can do it in React. It's easier, it's yeah. more flexible. You can do things how you want. And I agree with that. And I think if you use React with TypeScript, you basically, you know, remove kind of the need for something like Angular in a way, because then you have all yeah. the benefits without the problems. So definitely my my answer to that is React with TypeScript. And then you don't need something like Angular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Um, and then with React, it's like, just like you said, People think, oh, it's just easy. Let's just uh, make everything in React and use junior programmers to do everything in React. But I disagree with that because it's not. It, it, there's a lot of best practices that you need to learn. There's a lot, lot to learn. You actually have to have good experience in React. Yeah, in the, it's it's easy to make like a prototype for something where you don't have accounts, you don't have like important like complicated data coming in, and you don't have you know the difference between a prototype and a proper platform is enormous there's a reason why why companies need to raise millions to build a product when yeah. people can do a prototype in two days there is a reason for that there's a reason why yeah <laughs> so, i yeah. totally agree what's the what's the future of custodian do you think 
Um, look, I, I'm I'm very excited about where we're going. I think we're going to definitely get. I think um, beyond cars, I think we have collectible assets as a whole uh, planned because the problems between owning a car, owning a yacht, owning a musical instrument, like all of the same. You know, the collectible world is kind of of uh, not very visited by technology. Let's be that way. However, you know, car for us makes sense as a first uh, kind of beachheading strategy because, well, Charles's connections and network and also experience as a car owner. And um, also because you need to start somewhere, win a market, and then you can expand. And, you know, we could either decide that, you know, we made it big in cars and we decide to go for the US or, you know, like expand right. geographically or we can ex- decide, okay, well, let's expand in terms of let's stay in the UK and do all of the collectible assets and then expand. There are different ways that we could do it. But the thing with startups is I think it's important to have a long-term vision. I think what the long-term vision needs to make sure just is that you do have a term, long-term vision, one. You can have multiple long-term visions. That's fine as long as they are all aligned with what you're doing now and it makes sense. Um, and you do need to have a long-term vision where you can show to VC, this is a $1 billion company business. You know, this is a $1 billion company. Yeah. Like, you know, if, if you have this argument and if you have this vision, then you're good to go. Um, and we don't have just one vision for the $1 billion, $1 billion company uh, idea. We have, we have multiple visions and all of them are possible given our current uh, product is just a question of which one will we decide to go for given our users preferences so if we see that you know we have captured the car market and 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 it's going very well and you know they are like yeah please please go to the us or whatever then we'll go for that if we see that those people they're like hey can i also put on the platform my watches which i have i have a collection of cars but also have those yacht i have those watch i have this wine like is there a way for me to manage it as well like this because this is really nice for my car but i'd like to be able to do that for the whole bundle of my collections so depending on what the users will ask us for and where we see the traction is we'll basically you know, not pivot because we have nothing to change. We'll basically go towards that route. Yeah, that's very, very good. Um, are you back in the office in Custodian or are you working from home? Okay, so we are working from home. So, um, you know, we had an office um, mm. before the pandemic, of course, and it was great. However, I realized I prefer working remotely for many reasons. One, hiring is better. I don't mm-hmm. want to hire just engineers who are working in London near my office. Uh, you know, I've hired um, I've hired people who are, one is in Spain, one is in Los Angeles. Uh, the other is in Romania at the moment. She's living in London still, but she travels. And that was during the pandemic? That was during the pandemic, oh, yes. Wow. And we have really good experience with this. Um, we, are, we have onboarded people in a remote way uh, very well because Jeremy Hindle, co-founder, has done... Um, remote working way before the pandemic with Head Start. He was one of the first people to go remote. Uh, But usually I'm speaking four years before the pandemic started, you know. So he had complete experience over how to handle all the logistics and all the hiring process and how to make sure that people communicate the right way, et cetera. And using Discord, and that's something that's in the advantage of small companies, because I know that for security, you can't use something like Discord in big companies. But we are using mm-hmm. Discord and it feels so nice because you have different channels, you have different rooms. It feels like an office, honestly. And the very funny thing is that I I spoke to you know hired employees remotely, like on a day-to-day basis, to the point where 
it was very strange. I finally understood how you can actually create friendship just digitally. I never believed in it before, but mm. I could actually joke with them, like talk to them as if we were in a, you know, almost at a pub and I did not even meet them physically. And then we organized an event where I met some of the people physically for the first time and they were exactly like I had pictured them. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. And I was like, I know what you I mean. never met you and I knew you. So I, you know, you can definitely bond digitally if you have the, the right logistics and the right management, yeah. you can definitely do it. And then you create real life events when you can actually bond. For example, we organized go-karting and then we're organizing like, you know, we're probably going on a boat. Mm. Like, sorry i think i lost you for a second i lost you for a second as well i'm not sure what happened i guess it was yeah. just zoom <laughs> sorry yes it's probably um, my yeah, connection so, um, as well. yeah I don't you think, said you were going on a boat we're... trip yes um uh well charles uh co-owns a boat in in south of england so we may all just go there and 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 meet each other uh guillaume is moving to london uh he's from barcelona he's moving to london for a few months so, um, you know, I think when companies say that they don't want remote working because they can't create relationships between people, I think it's just because they're not doing it right. Um, mm. Because it's definitely possible. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. Well done for doing this. I am pro going back to the office, but that's okay. mostly because I'm bored uh, working uh, <laughs> from home. Uh, uh, well, but something also to add with remote working is that it should be a choice one. Like if big companies, I think if they can afford both office and remote, I think it's great to yeah. offer the choice to people. And but also something which is worth saying is um, Andra, uh, a software engineer, which we recruited literally three months ago, she's a mother of two. And for her, oh, yeah. remote work made a whole difference in her career. Like yeah, you can't imagine. She's like... Like, for example, her, her children were in holiday, you know, the summer holidays. She said, it's amazing that, like, I don't have to stress over what am I doing with them. Like, I'm at home. They are here. I know they said they are young, so they can't be left alone. And mm. she's like, it's it's so nice to know that, you know, if one has a problem, he's here. I can see. And, you know, it's rather than being called by someone, hey, your child has a problem. Go to the doctor. You don't know what's happening. But, you know, having all this peace of mind and also, obviously, like all the logistics behind. And and, and I was wondering and I was there, like, how would she have done during the summer holidays if she had to be in the office every like all day long? Her husband has to be, be in the office as well. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, I think having the opportunity for remote working, I think is going to be such a game changer for women who wants to start families because, you know, the, the whole logistical nightmare and the whole pressure that it's, it's you to have to take the day off work and not your husband or whatever, like all of this thing kind of goes out of the window. If, if both people work remotely, this is where you can have true equality and, and, and make things so easier. So, yeah. Yeah. You also have a very successful Instagram account uh, which is really hard to make. Um, and I find it amazing how you're a co-founder and you also can invest some time in social media. So how often do you post and how much yeah. time do you invest in it? Yeah. So um, you say it's very successful. I don't think it's very successful in the sense that um, <laughs> yeah. if to I were posting is. every day, I think I could have had like, you know, over 100K people. But mm -hmm. because I don't spend much time on it, that's why... Um, I think the reason why I have so much followers is because I had a lot of time at university when I had started it. And I think mm, I created okay. a sort of 
initial relationship with a lot of people who know me from back then. Um, you know, I had my first 10K followers within three months of creating the account when I was at university. And, you know, and it's been four years now. And in four years, I only doubled, um, you know, up to 20K. So you, if you compare three months to four years, I have not yeah. made any kind of progress regarding this. And that's right. fine. I, I know for sure that if I wanted to get, you know, to influencer level and get over 100K, like I've seen it happen to a lot of other accounts. And it's about consistency, posting every day, videos are preferred, like all this kind of stuff. But yeah. as you say, I don't have the time and it's not a priority for me. I think what's my priority is to keep this account alive because because I have it and I like to share about my things, but I never see Yago's code as a chore or as work because I, yeah. I never took, for example, time off on the weekends to create content or whatever. Like I actually create content uh, at lunch when I have 20 minutes. I just take a peek of myself and the content is nothing that I have to search or I have to craft. The content is always, what have I been up to this week? And usually because I'm in a startup, there's always something to share on, yeah. you know, how I, how I do my product on, you know, how I organize my issues on GitHub, how I communicate with other developers who I'm doing design, the architecture choices that I'm making, those things, because I'm doing so much, it's very easy to create content in 10 minutes because I'm just going to write about what was on my mind literally today. Yeah. So um, definitely something where I'm not spending any time on it, actually, like I'm, I'm only posting like once every week, sometimes every two weeks. And usually mm. to, to make a post, it takes me like 20 minutes. Um, I would say, you know, I would say sometimes I'm wondering, I'm like, should I take some more time and grow it is it even more, you know? But then that means I wouldn't have time to do my art, for example. I like to do my digital mm. art, like whenever I have free time, like on the evenings and on the weekends. And I'd What's rather the not digital art it. that you do? Do you do it by coding? Uh, no, so it's... Uh, uh, digital art. So it's um, I'm I'm just making art basically. I'm making illustrations. I like to make stuff. I like to open perhaps a shop for like where I can like uh, deliver like the frames for flat decorations. Like I'm I'm an artist, so I like to paint. I like to draw. And right now I'm seeing like okay, I could either grow Yagros code on the evenings or I could yeah. make art. And you know I'm already building something with my company. I'm already creating something off the ground i'm already building something which is my own so i don't have this if i if i were a full-time employee i think i would have needed to have something on my own on the side so i think i definitely would yeah. have doubled down near gosco but because i'm doing my own startup on on the day on the evenings i'm like you know what this is my me time i'm going to prioritize whatever hobby i want to do rather than a social media account and that does yeah. not mean that i don't value year code like i really do value it but it's not something which i want to see as a work product it's something which i yeah. want to see as something which i share to my audience when i can yeah. when i want and if it's helpful to them that's great if it's not I, I want to have this as my space it's amazing how you say you're an artist because you know many people would think many people have this idea of programmers just sitting in a basement coding all day doing nothing else um but it's it's most of them that because I have I in my career I've known so many of them most of them actually do have hobbies that are related to art yeah, uh, yeah mostly 100%. music like you said it's it's as well. a lot it's, of programmers or musicians yeah exactly makes exactly a lot of sense to be fair <laughs> yeah it does. when you know does. when you know about programmers it makes sense but from the external world it's like really 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the the people outside this community don't really understand this, and yeah. uh, it's it's great for my listeners to to know that you're also a really really good artist. So, what's well, your I, yeah? I, I think on. the reason why as well is because programmers usually are introverts. Because we, if it's not introverts, you're used to doing something which only requires your own presence. So when you yeah. code, for example, you code on your own. When you do music, you kind of are in your own world, in your own focus. You know, it's it's where you recharge your batteries. Like after coding, I don't have the energy to go to a pub, but I would have the energy to stay in my room and do cool music, you know? And I think there's that. And also it's um, it's creative. Like coding is super creative. Like you create, you build all day, you think all day. And what art is, is the same. It's, you have tools and many of, Many artists nowadays use technological tools. For example, music, musicians will use software music, you know, uh, or, you know, artists will use something like, you know, like Photoshop or making digital art, this kind of stuff. It's also very technical, even just artists, for example, even if it's just on paper, you need to understand the proportions of the body, perspective, and all of this stuff is, yeah. It is, and music as yeah. well, understanding the harmonies and stuff like that, that's also very mathematical. True. And so it makes so much sense from like, a technological perspective from people who are in the tech world it makes sense that other programmers are really into art and do music and do this yeah. kind of stuff because we understand how it works and it's exactly the same working and to people who are not from the tech world they don't see programmers as creatives because they don't know that coding is creative they think yeah. coding is just a bunch of maths but it's the creative part of math is you know you have an exercise which doesn't have a set answer you have to do whatever you want and you look at the documentation yeah. and you figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Nice, very interesting. What was my last question, because you've achieved so much at such a young age, would be like, what's your advice for someone that wants to start their career in tech and potentially become a founder as well? Um, yes, I would say, um, I would say that it is, um, it is up to you to understand um, your goals and make everything in your life aligned to make that happen. And so, for example, you know, understanding the difference between contractor and employee, remote, non-remote, whether you want to be mentored, whether you don't need to be mentored at the moment. If you do need to be mentored, you need to understand what are the ways that I can get a mentor and there's more than one. You know, like being very strategic and and thinking a lot and uh, the, the advice that I give to people, even not just coders, but anyone who wants to create a startup or do anything in their life, I'm always saying, always have a long-term goal at any moment of time. And you can always change that goal, but you need to move forward. You can't move forward if you don't know where you're going. And if you, you know, and it doesn't matter if, let's say that, because everything builds up on top of everything, right? Let's say that I didn't know what I want to do. And therefore, I kind of waste my time around. I do stuff which are not very commit commitful, and um, and I don't really achieve much because I'm just looking around, not doing much stuff. Well, that means that if tomorrow I wake up and I'm like, actually, I'd like to be a startup co-founder, I've wasted a lot of time. None of that time has been useful to do anything. Or if I wake up in the day and I say, oh, I'd like to get a mentor, because I haven't done anything very interesting, that means that no mentor is interested in me because they don't see the yeah. potential. So um, it doesn't matter what your goal is or, you know, a lot of people are there like, oh, I don't want to think long-term because that goal might change. But that is such a very vicious way of thinking because 
you know, don't, don't focus on the fact that it will change, you know, take one step at a time, focus on one goal. And when you yeah. go towards that goal, you will do things which will help you even if you change your goal. So move forward. And a lot of people don't have any goals. And again, they are like, oh, I don't know what to do because it's long-term. I don't know where I'll be in 10 years. I don't know what I will want to do in 10 years. Will I still want to do a startup or whatever? Just like think long-term and short-term at the same time, which is like an yeah. interesting balance, right? But yeah, definitely... Do one thing at a time, focus on one long-term goal at a time. Do focus on something when you do something, it has to be intentional, it has to be strategic. Definitely be very strategic because it saves you time. Um, and then, you know, and then there is the other advice, which is if you want to do your own startup, try to understand why you want to do it. Yeah. Because you definitely will have to make a lot of sacrifices. And, you know, and you have to make sure that the end goal is worth these sacrifices and there are two reasons for that one if you don't understand what sacrifices you're going to make and and if your reason for being a founder is not strong enough you will give up um and that will be huge wasted time <laughs> uh, yeah. not as much as if uh you know because it does teach you a lot you know to be a co-founder and stuff like that but it can be a wasted time compared to if if you could have seen that before started before you started and and pick a goal that would have put you, you know, on long-term in a better position to do whatever you want to do. So um, definitely think twice and really do visualize the sacrifices. What if I told you that you would lose all of your university friends? How would you feel? You know, all of my friends yeah, exactly. now are friends which I have in the tech world, which I met, you know, randomly afterwards. And now that I have more time, you know, I meet a lot of people who are co-founders as well. Um, but it's a very different vibes like i won't you know get drunk with those co-founders on a saturday evening yeah, yeah. Uh, going to nightclub because they don't have the time as well and so yeah. if now i wanted to have the time and go to nightclub i can't really go back to my old friend which i haven't spoken to for four years so you know like make sure it requires you, some sacrifices yeah yeah and i think people take it quite lightly but like really do visualize all of your friends from university you don't speak to any of them anymore your mm. world has completely changed and, and shifted. How, how would you feel? Would you feel like that's worth it? To me, it mm. is. But to a lot of people, I know that it's not going to be worth it. Yeah. Great. Very valuable advice. Thank you so, so much for coming to the Thank show. Uh, it's been an amazing. I mean, we went past the time that I usually do my mm. podcast, but it was all worth it. Um Thank you so much for sharing your journey and your experiences. Uh, it's very, very valuable for the listeners. And your uh, Instagram account is? Natalia... It's Jaeger's code, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for our listeners to go and check it out and also, of course, check out the Custodian app and uh, website. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Uh, hopefully I'll meet you in person at some point and we can yeah that'd uh, be cool at, when custodian is a lot bigger and better <laughs> thank you thank you so much for having me if you made it this far that means that you're enjoying the show so why don't you go to apple podcasts and write a review for the verified geek you can find us on all the podcast platforms like apple spotify and google podcasts uh, you can also find us on Instagram at verified underscore geek. And we have a channel on YouTube, Verified Geek. Thank you so much for listening.